Well, good morning. Uh, it's a pleasure to be with you this morning. I want to offer greetings to those who are attending online. We're thankful that you're with us. Uh, just a heads up for you at home. Uh, we will be celebrating communion at the end of the service, so if you want to uh, prepare the items for, for that time, uh, you can go ahead and do that too as well. But uh, I hope you all had a wonderful celebration of the birth of our Savior. I'm sure that for many of you it wasn't quite like the celebrations you've had in the past. Some kind of uh, changes were probably called for or you had to follow through with. Uh, but the good news, of course, is that it's the same Savior we celebrate. There's no change there. And the same, celebrate, uh, same Savior we trust. My name is Doug Gamble. Uh, I'm not one of the usual people you see up front here at Cole. Uh, many of you know my wife, Laura, and I have been ministering in uh, Central America, Costa Rica, for many, many years. Uh, we're working uh, in the teaching and in the administration of a seminary down there. We're outreach workers for Coal to the World. But I'm really pleased to be able to share the word with you today and to grow through the worship as well that Julie has for us. It's wonderful. This is uh, the New Year's service, New Year's message. Uh, we're not there yet, but that's okay. If I look back in order to look forward, one word sort of captures for me 2020, and it's the word disruption. Our, our basic health, our notions of what health is, were disrupted in 2020. The masks we're all wearing uh, is, is, is an emblem of that, of that fact. Uh, many of us lost loved ones to this health crisis. Uh, where we had to change our whole notion of how we're going to practice health and hygiene. Our gathering as church families were disrupted. <clears throat> our educational system was disrupted. I read a uh, comic or cartoon the other day in which there was a picture of a man and wife and, I don't know, two or three kids kind of spread out around the dining room table with computers and just kind of chaos. And the mother said, it's called remote learning because the chance of a child learning anything is remote. <laughs> so, been a lot of good work there, but it's, it's been a challenge, I know that. Uh, our employment has been disrupted. Some have lost jobs or had jobs reduced or paychecks reduced. Lots of weddings have been rescheduled, postponed, or reshaped. A good friend of mine did one in the living room of an Airbnb the other day, and he did his own daughter's service. Changes have been called for, right? Uh, there have been disruptions in travel. I remember talking to Nicholas and Danielle Ivins. They had, I think, a dozen ministry trips this year canceled. Uh, we were supposed to be in Costa Rica all this year. We came briefly in, in the end of February to visit family. And during our time here, uh, just uh, two weeks, the border closed behind us. We, couldn't, we weren't allowed to return to Costa Rica for most of the year. Hopefully we'll get back there in early January. Uh, but there's been political and social disruption as well. And this disruption has brought hardship, loss, and pain. But I also hear testimonies of ways in which it has been a blessing. And we can't overlook the good things that God has brought out of this time. I think of some women and men who normally travel two or three weeks out of the month for their business, for their work, and they have been at home all year with their families a special blessing for their families. Special stresses involved as well, but nonetheless, a real blessing as a result of that. And of course, disruption means that our customs and our routines 
our ways of doing things are interrupted. They're altered. In some cases, they'll be changed forever. And this is all disorienting. We've learned that we can't really predict very well what's coming. We aren't sure of what kind of plans we can make, how to prepare, how to invest our time and energies in what will make sense. It's disorienting. And I was thinking, as I was thinking about that, that word disruption, I just kind of suddenly realized that maybe the ultimate disruptor, if you read the Bible, is God himself. He is repeatedly disrupting the lives of people in the scriptures. Think for a moment of Abraham. Comfortable, wealthy existence in Ur of the Chaldees. And God says, we're heading out. Come on. Where are we going? I'm not going to tell you yet. Where am I going to live? Well, you're going to be a sojourner. There was all kinds of disruption there. And that was in response to the disruption of sin in Genesis 3. So all of these disruptions that follow are God's redemptive disruptions. Think of Moses. He had one about every 40 years. He leaves Egypt the first time because he wants to identify with his people. Then he is out in the wilderness of Midian, shepherding, and the burning bush lights up. God talks to him, and there's another giant disruption in his life, and he's asked to do something he knows he's not capable of doing unless he trusts God. And then he leads this massive disruption of the people leaving Egypt, right, and towards the promised land. I think probably the biggest disruption in all of the Bible, actually in all of world history, is what we celebrated two days ago. The incarnation. God becoming man. God entering his story. And of course that had a ripple effect of disruptions. Think of Mary's life, Joseph's life, the disciples' life. Come and leave your nets and come and follow me. And then just when it seems like Jesus is hitting his stride in, in ministry comes the disruption of the crucifixion. Which seems horrible and yet it is the part, uh, the central part of God's plan to save us. So God is a God who seems to want to use disruption, excuse me, in the way he works with us. Now, why might that be? Well, I think part of the reason, I don't think we can know all the reasons, but part of the reason is that we become really addicted to comfort and complacency. We don't like change. We think of uh, the, the, one of the great goals in our culture is retirement, where we can just take it easy and just do what we want. But that's not biblical. We are creatures of comfort, and therefore this disruption makes us uncomfortable. But again, it, dis, it disorients us. I think of those, the movies, are, you can see films of the astronauts and the, the space station when they do the, the spacewalks, right? They're floating out there, and if they just so much as touch the the space station, they float away from it. They need to hold on to it. They're tethered to it. And in the movies, the tethers break, right? And they just float off forever into space. To battle disorientation that disruption causes, we need something to hold on to. We need an anchor. We need a north to know and to orient ourselves. The passage that we're talking about today is all about that. Before we dig in, let's pray. Lord, uh, we need your illumination. There is a passage before us today which many of us have read many, many times. But I ask that you'd help us to see it with fresh eyes, help us to respond to it with a deeper faith, and most of all, that our love for you would grow. Because that's what we're here for. In Jesus' name, 
to be honest, and I guess this is kind of a confession, for reasons I'll share in just a minute, uh, this passage has bothered me for a long time. That's one of the reasons I picked it. I said, I, okay, I've got to face this thing. I've got to deal with it somehow. So that's why I picked it for this way. I just decided I was going to wrestle with this passage. Let me read it again one more time. When the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked Jesus a question, testing him. Teacher, which is the great commandment of the law? And Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and foremost and first commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, I'll talk in a minute about this heart, soul, and mind distinction. Bottom line, I think the real, real point is love him with everything you got, all in. That's the idea. But before I get to unpacking those, those subtle differences between heart, mind, and, and heart, soul, and mind, uh, I want to go back to the last verse, which I didn't read. The last verse of this little passage, verse 40, says this. Upon these two commandments hang the whole law and the prophets. That's a remarkable thing to say. That's a monumental thing to say. Jesus is saying basically that all of God's word hangs on these commandments. Without these, in other words, it falls to the ground. It falls apart. It amounts to nothing. This whole thing depends on these verses, what's communicated here about the love of God and the love of our neighbor. See, failure to do that is what brought the entrance of all the darkness we experience in our lives. When Adam and Eve chose to sin in Genesis 3, they chose not to love God and not to love each other. And they immediately experienced alienation from God and from each other. And so what we really begin to realize is that love of God and love of each other is this ultimate reference point, the thing we hold on to, the anchor that keeps us together no matter what the disruption might be. So let's go through this passage. Jesus says we're supposed to love him with all our heart. What does he mean by that? Well, the heart is the seat of our affections, our feelings. It's what we enjoy, what we like, what we value. And Jesus said, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. So it's the things we treasure and we enjoy. Now the bottom line is, Jesus says in a series of those parables, that the great treasure of life is God. God is the great treasure of life. Now, our affections may or may not agree with that, but at the bottom line, God is the great treasure of life, and our heart is about what we're drawn to, what attracts us, right? what our feelings revolve around. Jesus says we're supposed to love him with all our soul. The word soul first appears in Genesis 2. God has made man out of the, out of the dust, and then he gets to him face to face, closer than six feet, and breathes life into him. And it says, and he became a living soul. That's where it starts. God's infusion of his life into us is what makes us a living soul. That's, in other words, our deepest identity is what God is doing in us and who we are in God. Another aspect of the soul, then, is also it's in the same way that our eyes perceive and respond to light or our noses perceive and respond to scent, our soul is what perceives and responds to God. 
because that's what God gave us that is unique to humanity. The animals don't receive this. Just human beings receive this. But that's what died in sin. That's why Paul says you were dead in your sins and transgressions. Our souls were dead. They couldn't respond to God. They were dead. And that's why Paul says we were raised again with Christ by faith. Now we have the ability to perceive and respond to God. So it's our ability to relate to God resides in our soul and our deepest identity uh, resides right in our soul. Over and above race or economics or uh, national political identity, our identity is who we are in God. Then Jesus says, we must love him with all our mind. Now this is our thought life. The Bible says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. God is the beginning of all correct thinking. Paul says it even more specifically in Colossians where he says, in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. All correct thinking will go from first step, God is at the center. God is the key to knowledge. So, as we look at these, it's important to realize that it's not a question of um, doing our best to put God at the center of our lives. He is at the center. He's already there. That's the way life is created. God is the truly the most important and valuable thing to treasure. He's at the center of our true identity. And he is the one who enables us to know and think clearly. Now, we can choose to try to put something else in those places, in place of God, in terms of where our treasure is, what our identity is, and where our thought life goes. But if we do that, we're living life off-center, out of line. We're trying to play tennis with a golf club. We're trying to play a piano concerto with bongo drums. We're trying to barbecue a steak with matches. You could go on and on. They might be fun for you to invent at home. Ways that, that just doesn't, it's just not going to work, right? We're trying to play God as though we can decide what's at the center. That decision's already been made. God's already taken the spot and he's not going to move. The only question is, are we going to live in line with God at the center? Okay. Now that brings me to this part of the passage that has bothered me for a long time. This young man asked Jesus about the greatest commandment. He's asking about eternal life. He's asking about the most important question a person can ask, right? And I, I think he's probably thinking, is there a, what rules do I need to keep? What tasks do I need to perform? What sacrifices do I need to make? And Jesus responds by telling him that the command is to love God. That's the part that bothers me. Sorry to confess that from the pulpit. Okay? Can we be commanded to love? I mean... Doesn't love just happen or not happen? Doesn't it just strike our hearts or not? I mean, some things are just... My neighbor, for example, can be really hard to love. What if my neighbor doesn't mow his lawn or never returns the thing I loan him? Or what if he's got a a sign of another political party that I don't like on his lawn? Or what if if he's of a, a race that I don't approve of? Or what if he does things that are sinful? Wait a minute then it's hard. I don't even like him. How can I love him? There's all kinds of problems in my estimation when I'm doing that. Right? And God can be hard to love too. 
can't see him. He doesn't always seem to be involved with things. He does things like send a COVID all across the globe. Why on earth would a God allow that? Well, bottom line, that's above our pay grade and security clearance to know all those answers. Right? <laughs> however, however, we do know that he brings some uh, redemption from it, but it's beyond our understanding. And another reason it's hard for us to love God is sometimes our authority figures growing up, perhaps our father was not a good father. So to picture a heavenly father as a father is really a challenge for us. So there's lots of reasons we have a hard time with this word. But the idea of being commanded to do it is also difficult. The problem, of course, I think, involves in understanding what love really is. And I think that's one of the greatest problems the world faces today is not really understanding what love is. Um, think about it. If all we had was a steady diet of Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, Pinterest, TV, movies, Netflix, Hulu, to define love, what's the message we're getting? Well, love is all about physical attraction, warm fuzzies, sexual heat. It's little more than something produced by hormones. It's something we fall into. Or it's too, it's too big and out of our control. It's the wild thing. So the world just tells us flat out that love is something that happens to us. But Jesus says he commands us to do it. What do we do with that conflict? How are we supposed to understand this? Well, how are we supposed to understand any of this stuff? We go to God's Word. I want to start just with a couple of passages here that unpack this idea of what love is biblically. Can we have that first slide up, please? 1 John 4.16 says, God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in Him. What does it mean to say that God is love? First, a warning. It does not say that love is God. That's the case in much of the world. It sets up some notion of what love is, and that's the idol. That's the most important thing to get. You, you sacrifice everything to get that experience or get that feeling. But that's not what the text says. That's not what the Bible teaches. It says that God is love. Okay? Now, one of the things we can say that that means then is that love is the central character trait of God. Not anything else. It's the central character trait of who God is, is love. That's important. We have skewed perceptions of God, that he's mean, that he's angry, that he's old, that he's grumpy, that he's, 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 he's against us. The central characteristic of God is love. It also means that the kind of love we're talking about here, real love, true love, comes from God. It doesn't come from us. It doesn't come from hormones. It comes from God. If we want to have that love, we want to experience that love, if we want to be able to pass on that love, we've got to go to God. He's the source. Love exists because God exists. Now, that only gets us partway there. God's the source. We're not going to get it anywhere else than with Him. But what is it? Still, it's like the bread from heaven in the Old Testament. Mana, what is it? Right? Well, I want to borrow a few verses from 1 Corinthians 13, the great love chapter of the Bible. And I'm going to ask you to think about these in a slightly unusual way. But it says, Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. 
It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, endures all things. Now, Paul writes that to the Corinthian church because they're suffering from disunity. And he's trying to bring them together and tell them what God's love is all about so that they'll join and unify again. But I want us to look at this slightly differently. If God is love, the kind of love he's talking about here is also the way God loves us. So let's try that on. God's love is patient and kind. Well, if we scan the scriptures, pretty much every great hero in the Bible has great failures. They aren't really all that heroic. And God is patient with everyone. He's patient with Abraham. He's patient with Noah. He's patient with Adam and Eve. He's patient with, you name it, Gideon and many others. And I think all of us know that he's been patient with us, if we're honest. God's love is fundamentally patient. Peter writes, Peter, who needed a lot of God's patience, said, The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not willing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Another line from that 1 Corinthians passage, Love does not envy or boast, it is not arrogant or rude. Well, now you'd think that if anybody has a right to sort of be, you know, the alpha dog of love, it's God. Because he's the king, right? I can, I can push my way around because I'm the king. But God comes at us with tremendous humility. Jesus says, for example, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. We don't find most great leaders of the world saying, I am gentle and lowly in heart. And the very fact that Jesus came to the world at all is an act of divine humility. It's astonishing that God would be so humble to join us in our mess and to become one of us. Paul expounds on it when he says, God emptied himself taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself to become obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. God's love is a love that comes in a package of humility. Another of the lines there is, God does not insist on its own way. Love does not insist on its own way, and God does not insist on his own way. Now you might think, well, of course he does. He says, it's my way or you're in trouble. But you know what? He allows us to choose trouble. You can do that. I can do that. I do that. That's part of life. Love is not something that can be forced. Of course, God's way is the best way. But like the father in the parable of the prodigal son, the son wants to go, the father says, okay. Right? C.S. Lewis says, there are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done, and those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. Love can't be forced. Love must be chosen. Love must be chosen. It says in that Corinthians passage that love does not rejoice in wrongdoing. Right? God doesn't flirt with anything wrong and he doesn't have this attitude that society will portray that he's waiting to see his failing. He says, aha, I caught you, as though he enjoys our failure. Every failure on our part is sadness on the part of God because he knows it hurts us. Right? We have, we're twisted. Probably all of us can think of people. Maybe you have them in your life now. Maybe in the past that you secretly enjoyed when they fell on their face. Simply. 
I was researching this the other day, and apparently, some of you, I don't really speak any German, but apparently German has a word for this. Can I get that next slide? I'm going to try some German out here. Schadenfreude. It is in the German language, and it's the joy at experience at others' failure. I mean, you can see it with the snowman there, then you can see it with these things, right? Now, this is a dark part of our human nature that God doesn't share. He is always compassionate, and whenever, it's not about, oh, it's your fault, or, oh, you made your bed now, you got to lie in it. Oh, you had it coming. God is never like that. God says, I'm sorry. Oh, I wish you hadn't done that. Let's see, let's see how we can get back on track. Right? Then that passage in 1 Corinthians, can we go back to that for just a second? It says it endures, God's love endures all things and it bears all things. Kind of a summary statement. God's love perseveres. It lasts. A great example of this, I think, in Jesus' uh, life is when he's hanging on the cross and the people who put him on the cross and the people who've been following him around and uh, are mocking him, saying, if you're the Son of God, why don't you come down? And because he is the Son of God, he doesn't come down. They're treating him like trash, and he takes it to, to grant them the possibility of being forgiven. This is what God's love is like. This is what he loves us with. And you know what? This love is a high calling. This is not a hormone-driven reaction. This is a rugged thing, a resilient thing. It's a noble I've always loved and been challenged by the last couple verses of the book of Habakkuk, where uh, there's a famous book that comes out of it. I'm not going to go into that, but Habakkuk says, God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. We're in Idaho. A whole bunch of you have seen deer's feet up close. Okay? I have. And you know what? They have a remarkable quality to them. There is a soft and suppleness to them, but they're amazingly tough. When you look near, they can cling to rocky crags, especially the mule deer here. You scare them at the wrong time, and they bounce, right? They just they bounce, and they're hitting the ground so hard, and those, those, those feet just take it. And what Habakkuk is saying, God can make us like that. Not that we're callous and coarse, but that we are capable of rugged love, to keep going with our love regardless of what happens. As God loves us, he keeps loving us regardless of the way we treat him. And so that's the nature of this love. Now, but Jesus says we're supposed to love God, right? So let's turn it around. This is what our love for God is to be like. Our love for God is to be patient with His way. We are to have patience towards God, aren't we? And we have to have patience towards God. He doesn't do things the way we would like Him to do. He doesn't follow our time frame at all. But when we trust God to do things His way, when we show patience with God, and the scriptures are full of examples where patience is one of the central things our faith calls for, we're loving God. When we are patient and wait on God, Rod preached just two nights ago, a lot of waiting on God that we're around, the, around the Christmas story. And when we do that, we're loving God. God's love isn't arrogant. Our love isn't arrogant. We come to God in humility, remembering our position before Him, 
that He's in charge. He knows better than we do. When we do that, when we take His yoke, we'll go the right way in life. When we accept our loving position, humble position before the King of the universe, we're loving Him. When we yield to that position, we come to Him with humility, we're loving Him. When we give up our ego, we're loving Him. Ego's not a, you guys, ego's not a good thing, right? I hear a lot, I'm sorry, I'm, man, I hear a lot of this fragile male ego. I know what that's about. But we're not supposed to be coddling that ego. You know what's supposed to happen to that ego? It's supposed to die. It's supposed to go buried in the ground. And then the thing will grow into something fruitful. Let's not, let's not say, well, you're harming my ego. Kill that thing. Put it to death. Life grows out of that death. We come to God with humility, and when we do so, we're loving Him. Our love for God doesn't insist on our way. Back to that Corinthians passage. And here we find Jesus' amazing example. He doesn't want to go to the cross. He says, Lord, let this cup pass from me. But nonetheless, your will be done. It's going to be, even if it's painful, Lord, I'm going through it because it's, your way is the best way. It doesn't insist on our way. So our love for God is just like that. Right? We don't try to control things. We don't insist on our way. God's the one who's in control. And when we yield to his control, everything goes better. This love is a resilient thing. It's not thin-skinned, right? Okay, now, maybe after my rambling and talking about this kind of love, you might say, well, that's all nice words, Doug, but I can't do it. I don't have it in me to love people like that. I don't have it in me to love God like that. To which I think God would probably say, ah, okay, you're finally getting it. That's right. You don't. That's why Jesus told Nicodemus he had to be born again. Where does this love come from? It can only come from God and it comes through the new birth, the regeneration of the Holy Spirit, the influence of the Holy Spirit living in us. It's something he gives us. Now, we can't produce it, we can't generate it, but we certainly can ask for it. And we should ask for it. And that's a prayer that God is pleased to grant. But it may not change our feelings at all to get that love, but it does enable us to step out, like Peter stepped out of the boat, to love God in obedience and to love others even if they're hard to love and to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. Because the bottom line is that faith, excuse me, to love God and to love others is an act of faith. That's what it is. It's an act of faith. Biblical love, our love for God, our love for neighbor will always require a dependence upon God. It's an act of trusting God with what we need, trusting God with what we want, trusting God with his timing and with his resources, and reaching out to others in their need and obeying God with whatever he calls us to do. And that's a step of faith. That's stepping out of the boat because that makes us vulnerable. And loving God and loving others always makes us vulnerable. So back to the heart and the soul and the mind. When we trust God and risk that step of obedience, that even when we don't like it or when we can't feel like it's going to work, or to love our neighbor even when it's difficult or uncomfortable, when we're counting on him as our great treasure, then we have the resources. We are enabled to have the resources to follow through with that. And we increasingly recognize and appreciate and love God as the great treasure of life. 
And the other stuff kind of fades away. Because the more we trust Him, the greater our treasuring of Him grows. And that's a beautiful thing. And when we trust Him, when we count on Him as our fundamental identity and not our job, not our skills or ability or talents or performance or accomplishments or bank account or car or house, when we count on our identity is in Him, then you know what? We grow stronger because we are, we're growing in our sense of who we truly are, who we are in God. And that's the unshakable one. That's the eternal one. And when we trust God, we're living out of a correctly aligned knowledge and true wisdom. It's not our own. And we grow in our knowledge of God. The Word says things to us it never said to us before. We discover in prayer new, new vistas of God's work in our lives and, and how we can be involved with his, his plans. So we step out and trust God, loving Him. That's what it is. Loving Him is trusting Him when we face temptation or pain or confusion or disruption. And we love our neighbors with that same kind of love, right? Whether they're in our house and so, that word is just near ones. That's what that word means. They might be in our house. They might be next door. They might be on our block on the other side of town. They might be on the other side of a border someplace. But our job is to remain faithful, trust God, to love them even when they're difficult to love, even when we can't see the answers, whether we can't see God involved or whether that we get some kind of flack back from people. Just keep moving forward in love, trusting God, His resources. He's the great treasure. Trusting God gives us the feet of a deer. makes us tough, rugged, and noble so that we just keep loving no matter what, like God does. Now I see, I've been a part of this body for 30 years. And I see that this love here in this body. I see young families with lots of kids at home and chaos a lot of the time and frazzled parents but who are still pursuing Jesus. That's rugged love, right? I see loving husbands and wives reaching out to their husbands and wives who are suffering with cancer. Spouses reaching out to spouses who are suffering with cancer who are, or, or, or with a degenerative disease. How do they do it? By faith, one step at a time, one day at a time. I see families showing this kind of noble, rugged love to other family members who have substantial disabilities and whose care requires immense patience, enormous resources, and time. How do they do it? Only by trusting God. Otherwise, they would just grow resentful. And I see marriages that genuinely do last until death do us part, which only happens when each one is trusting God, dying to self, putting the other as more important, and forgiving, and forgiving, and forgiving, and forgiving. That's the lifeblood of God's love, right? One couple was in the previous uh, service today, celebrates 40 years of marriage. I was talking to them, and I know that they would say that this is a testimony to God's faithfulness and love in them. In this body, we see people who move freely beyond political or racial or social or ethnic barriers to take the gospel in good terms of its good news and of its rich provision for people's needs, to take them to other people 
to open up doors because that gospel comes from the love of God and can only operate on the love of God. That's the currency of heaven, is the love of God. So, loving God and loving our neighbor is our fundamental purpose. That's why we are here. That's the reference point. That's the anchor. That's the rope to hold on to in 2021, no matter what disruptions come our way. And that's one certainty we have about 2021. Disruptions will come. Right? But even more certain is that God is working in them and through them to open up new opportunities for doing the most important thing, loving Him and loving others with that rugged, resilient, noble love. As Jesus says, everything hangs on this. But first we know that God, in His amazing grace and rugged love, is holding on to us, and He won't ever let go. Dan, I want to pray both to close that time and to open up our time of communion. Uh, so let's pause for a minute here, and then we'll, uh, we'll celebrate the Lord's Supper. Lord Jesus, release your word into these hearts and lives and into my heart. Increase our love for you. Help us to just step out in faith and obey you recklessly and love others recklessly, knowing that we're not going to be without resources because you are the great treasure, knowing that we're not going to lose our identity because our identity is fixed and firm in you, and knowing that we're not going to go the wrong way because you will work and give us the right way to think about all these things. And part of our celebration of that, part of our prayer there, Lord, is to come and obediently do what you ask us to do to remember this through the breaking of bread and the taking of the cup, to remember what you have done, the price you have paid, but the way you have shown your love to us, even to the death on a cross while we're still sinners. Change our hearts, Lord, and may we encounter this next year in powerfully, powerful ways, experiencing and demonstrating this noble, loving, rugged love. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, uh, let me read a short passage here to transition us into the Lord's table. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 11, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night in which he was betrayed, he took bread. That's astonishing in and of itself. He knows what's coming. (laughs) And he doesn't flag out or check out, go take a nap. He engages right to the end. He took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance for me. This is what's going to be broken on that cross for us. That's that rugged love. Let's take the body of Christ together.
the same way also he took the cup after supper. Uh, it's interesting to me that he did it after supper. So he did something early in the meal. They had this meal. Who knows all the other things they talked about, things they shared. But Jesus wants to make sure that they haven't lost the message that he started early in the message. So he's going to punctuate it again at the end of the message. So they go away not missing it because we are so prone to miss things, right? And so he says, in the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. This is the new arrangement that you are going to depend on me for the love you need for God and the love you need for your neighbor. Everything hangs on that. So let's take the cup in remembrance of what he did for us.